if we if we didn't confront terrorism like ISIS and Al Qaeda, I think that there's no question that they would gain traction and then begin to try to dominate you know countries, particularly failed states in the Middle East. And, and some some extent, that's kind of a form of a domino yeah. theory that would take place. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some areas where that's true. I think, on the other hand, I always believe that uh, that the most important thing about the United States is if we're going to provide leadership in the world, we do have to understand what motivates these countries. What are they interested in? What makes them who they are? Uh, we can't just we, we can't just create them in our own image, even though we you know we love democracy, we love you know what democracy is all about. I think we still have to understand those countries. I think when we had the so-called uh, Arab Spring, where countries were revolting against monarchies and tyrannies. Uh, I think what we failed to do was to understand each of those countries because they came from a tribal history. And somehow we thought that they could evolve into Jeffersonian <laughs> democracy. A little bit of arrogant. Yeah, it was. We, in order to exercise leadership, we need to understand these countries. Uh, Bill Clinton, when he was president, you know, he, you know, he, he was somebody who taught me a lot about, you know, about how you provide leadership. When he sat down with a foreign leader, he didn't do all the talking. He didn't tell them what they, he wanted them to do. He listened to them. And then he would say, if I was if I was in your shoes, this is what I would try to do. He tried to place himself in the position of that person. And I think leadership like that is the most effective because it really understands what motivates these countries and then how you can mold them so that in the end, you can advance human rights and all the values that we care about. So you talk about the Middle East. Uh, domino theory for Korea or Vietnam? Uh, you know, for Korea, I think, I don't know that it will happen in my lifetime, but I think someday South and North Korea will be unified. It'll happen. Uh, it's, it may take may take a while, but I think in the end that it will happen. Uh, but right now, uh, we're dealing with a leadership in North Korea that is totally power driven, ideological. Uh, does not care about really the, the people of North Korea. Sounds like our country. 
I'm beginning to worry about it. <laughs> okay. But, but you know, maybe that's why Kim Jong-un and him got along and had a love affair. The brothers. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, North Korea represents almost the, the diametric opposite of what South Korea is all about. Uh, South Korea really is, you know, developing economically, developing rights, even though they have their own problems. But, the, but it's a country that really is, is providing opportunity for their people. North Korea does not want to provide opportunity to their people. Okay. They want to basically contain their people. Okay. Um, one way of looking at 9-11 is that 2,900 people die in America. Then we go into a war, and 2,400 people die seeking revenge and teaching them a lesson and you know, whatever. Uh, so my question here is, on an international stage, when do you retaliate and when do you negotiate? And when does it, does it make sense for 2,400 people to die avenging 2,900 people? Well, I mean, you're, you're raising the fundamental issues that challenge quality of our leadership. Uh, if we have the right kind of leadership, uh, it can determine uh, when it is that we have to retaliate and when it is that, you know, being the strongest military power in the world, that we use uh, our diplomacy to try to reach out. Uh, to those countries that are adversaries uh, and try to find ways to deal with them uh, through our ability to negotiate, our ability to persuade, our ability to try to develop uh, common ways to achieve uh, goals that both countries want to achieve. That, America is at its strongest when it has the strongest military on the face of the earth, but also has the strongest diplomacy on the face of the earth. And if you don't have that combination, then it's always going to be easy for a commander in chief to say, screw it, I don't want to just negotiate, I'll just blow the hell out of them. That, that can happen, and it has happened. Uh, I mean, I, I think the right way to deal with 9-11 was because it was an attack by Al-Qaeda that you clearly have, have a responsibility to go after Al-Qaeda. And I think that was important to do, go after the leadership of Al-Qaeda, uh, who not only attacked our country, but continued to plan attacks on our country. Uh, to then take that same approach, uh, you know, by going into Iraq and, and the other mistakes that we made, uh, I think, I think reflected an America that did not take into consideration uh, what was in our best interest. Okay. Um, it, it seems to me that America, or at least most Americans, believe that we have the ability and right to decide who can have nuclear weapons. So how, how did we decide, well, you know, 
Pakistan, you're okay. North Korea, you're not okay. Iran, no. I mean, what? What? How did we become judge, jury, and executioner of who can get nuclear weapons? Not that I'm advocating that they get nuclear weapons, but how? Is that just pure American arrogance, or? Well, I think it goes back to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Because we squeezed the trigger first? Because we developed the atomic weapon and we used it. Uh, and it gave us a certain arrogance about our ability to uh, not only have but develop atomic weapons. And I think Russia then did the same thing. Uh, and suddenly you had a group of nations that had uh, nuclear capability. And their attitude was, we've got it. We don't want others to get it. Uh, and uh, they, you know, I think there was an effort at one time to really develop standards of trying to control uh, the development of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, the whole effort to develop uh, the, the nuclear agreements to, that, that countries would abide by was part of the effort to try to develop some kind of approach that would not have uh, nuclear weapons just simply proliferate across the globe and, and uh, ultimately destroy uh, our own planet. Uh, that, what happened was that there were a group of nations that were trying to drive that process, but what it, what it failed to consider were countries like Pakistan and India and others who said, wait a minute, North Korea, who said, wait a minute, you know, a we have as much right to a nuclear weapon as you do. That's what I just asked. They, yeah, uh, I mean, that's the, that, they took that, that same approach. Uh, I think the only way you restrain that is if you bring those countries to the table and make them part of the effort to try to say, wait a minute, if we're going to restrain uh, nuclear growth, then all of us have to be part of that effort. All of us have to be part of that effort. In many ways, what's happening with cyber is the same damn thing today. I think cyber is the battlefield of the future. I think the failure to sit down and try to understand how cyber is being used, what limits we should place on the use of cyber, uh, you know, try to develop some standards for uh, when, stand, you know, when, when cyber is acceptable and when it's not acceptable. Uh, the failure to do that really means that I think at some point we are headed towards uh, war in the cyber arena. Uh, do you think that low yield nuclear weapons are a deterrent or an irresistible toy that says, well, this is not such a bad nuclear weapon, so let's just fire a few of these low yield ones. I, I think it's dangerous to, uh, uh, to place these low yield we weapons uh, on our submarines because I think it increases the incentive to uh, make use of those uh, in, a, in a particular conflict. I mean, you may, you may make the decision, even though it's not a nuclear war that you're engaging in, that if you use low-yield nukes, that that will somehow uh, be able to prevent the war okay. from becoming worse. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, MacArthur's thinking in Korea was essentially use of low-yield nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, I think it, it doesn't take long if you deploy these low-yield weapons out there that 
you're going to create an incentive to potentially use those weapons in a situation where you otherwise would continue to use uh, conventional. conventional weapons. I mean, there must be some irony that you, you read the announcement of the, the low-yield nuclear weapons on subs, and the justification is, well, it's a deterrence against Russia, and then Russia is, <laughs> you know, our best friend now. I mean, like, a, how do you put those two things together? Um, well, I, I mean, I, look, I, I think if people would be better off if they thought about the fact that, you know, prior to making that decision, we were basically, we had taken the approach on deterrence that if they attacked us, we'd blow the hell out of them and they'd blow the hell out of us and we'd destroy the world. That was really the deterrence. I mean, who are we kidding? It was, you know, ultimately we're going to destroy the world. That's okay, in a, I mean, in a sense, right? You know, in many ways it worked. Yeah. In many ways it worked. Uh, even though, you know, I think so the old Soviet Union failed for a lot of reasons, probably largely economic. Um, but nevertheless, they collapsed. Um, I, I think that it's dangerous to think that somehow by using low-yield weapons that you give yourself greater flexibility, and sometimes that's what the military looks for, is how can we be a little more flexible here? Now, part of the problem is Russia is doing the same damn thing, and Russia is developing their nuclear arsenal, and they're going to continue to develop that, and every country then tries to figure out how do we counter what that country is doing. That's how the nuclear arms race begins. And my fear right now is that we're engaged in a nuclear arms race again with Russia. There's only one treaty left. Right? That's right. And that's about to go. Yeah. Uh, okay, getting off nuclear weapons. <laughs> uh, you hear a lot of talk about, you know, if such and such country doesn't do this, that so we're going to hit them with trade sanctions. Uh, have you ever seen a sanction work? No. Never. <laughs> What's the fear? <laughs> 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 okay, thank you, Neil. I don't, yeah, I don't believe that. I think, I, I think you, you engage in a trade war, uh, nobody comes out a winner. Everybody loses. Now, it's not to say that you shouldn't be tough, you shouldn't negotiate, you know, um, you know and, and be tough negotiators and use whatever leverage you can in those negotiations. But I think to, to engage in a trade war, uh, really not only damages the relationship, not only hurts people who depend on trade, but what it does in the end is it makes matters worse. I don't, I don't think what the agreement we came out with with China uh, is a Band-Aid agreement. It's trying to get us past November. <laughs> get us past November, get us past, you know, the immediate consequences of a full-scale trade war. Uh, and I, you know, I, I am a believer, and it goes back to my time in the Congress, I'm a believer that if you, if you want to accomplish something, the best way to accomplish it is to engage in negotiations and stay there as long as it takes 
to get what you want. Well, what's in your bag of tricks? What, what do you negotiate? So you can't negotiate a sanction. You can't use no, low yield nuclear. No, weapons. I mean there's lots of threats out there. I mean you you always have the sanction threat. You always have the trade war threat. But I think I think the bigger is the threat of how far, how much harm can I do to you? I think the bigger threat is. What can I do to offer you something that will make your economy and your people strong? Oh, so we're talking carrots, not sticks. Yeah, I think I'm a believer in carrots. I believe you always have sticks. You keep sticks in the closet, though. And you talk about how everybody can from the trade relationship. Because in the end, that's what both countries want to do. That's what most countries want to do. benefit from the trade relationship. Okay. Uh, this past week, we basically saw everybody go batshit because of the bug in the Iowa election app. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, no one seems to care, or go batshit at least, about Russian interference. So I don't understand that. And so, I mean, tell me that you know that somebody at the DOD or CIA were retaliating? I mean, what? what, what like from, I, I, just from the outside looking in, like, <laughs> I don't understand. We're not doing anything. We're just saying, oh, Russians are interfering. Oh, but the freaking Iowa election app, that's the end of democracy. What am I missing, Neil? Well, uh, you're missing <laughs> you're missing a lot of politics. Okay. <laughs> I don't understand. You're missing politics. And I think that Iowa, when the Iowa when the Iowa Democratic Party, for whatever reason, uh, came up with the wrong app or didn't test the app and, and screwed up the uh, reporting on the uh, caucuses. What they did was they handed the Republicans a weapon uh, in, in which the Republicans basically said, these guys are incompetent, the Democrats are incompetent. How can you, if, they, if you can't trust them to count votes and do it the right way, It's a real political weapon to beat up the uh, the Democrats. Now, uh, on the, the the fundamental issue of how do we how do we trust our election process today, so that every American who goes to the poll and casts his or her elect uh, vote knows that ultimately it counts. Uh, I think a lot of questions have been raised about uh, the ability of our system to be able to deliver one, one man, one vote. Uh, and part of it is due to what happened with the Russians uh, in 2016. The Russians, the Russians understood probably for, for the first time because we've always had cyber, we've always had the ability to hack, we've always had the ability to be able to screw things up uh, using that, that technology. But the Russians really decided to use cyber in an effective way to undermine the credibility of an election. And they did it very effectively. And 
I think they did it in 2018, and I think they're going to do it in 2020. And part of the fear, even though I think the majority of, the vast majority of leadership in this country, Republican and Democrat, uh, understand what the Russians are up to and want to prevent it from happening. And I know law enforcement and intelligence agencies are trying to watch it. But the fundamental problem is that the President of the United States has not denounced what the Russians are doing. And when the President doesn't denounce it, it undermines our ability to enforcement. That's not very reassuring. No, uh, it wasn't intended to be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't intended to be. There's not a room full of, like, in, in Donald Trump's word, 400 people, 400 pound people, like, working on hacking Russia right now? I mean, I, mean, it, it, I think it's very hit and miss. I think the intelligence agencies care a lot about it. I think the FBI cares a lot about uh, integrity. I think there are states that are very concerned about trying to protect the integrity of their elections. So there are a lot of levels of government that are trying to do it. But is there that kind of singular focus from the Washington level, from the from the presidential level, that keeps reminding people that this is happening and that we're doing everything necessary to stop it. You don't hear that from President Trump. But, no, but it seems to me that he and Mitch McConnell, they're conflicted. I mean, yeah, they're conflicted. The bad guy because is it's about them. It's about power. Yeah. If, if everything is about power, and you don't care how you protect or develop that power, then everything's for sale. Okay. And that's what we've been through with impeachment, and that's what we're going through with okay. regards to enforcing election laws. We have to turn more positive here. So, um, <laughs> okay, to now, in, in where we are, what do you teach kids about the democratic process? The most important thing I think that young people need to know is that they have to be involved, they have to care, and they have to believe that they can make a difference. That's, those are the important points okay. to make with young people, is that if, you know, and what I tell them frankly is don't get caught in this polarizing trap between you know, everybody's good on this side and everybody's bad on that side. What you have to do is understand that the only way our system works is if we're willing to sit down, to listen to one another, and to work together to try to solve the problems we confront. That's what democracy is based on. If you don't believe in that process, democracy will fail. So in many ways, what I want young people to do is to represent kind of the, the future, the, the, the future of our country. They do. But when I was a student, I really thought that leadership in Washington uh, was a good thing. I looked up to that, and I thought that I had role models in government. I had John Kennedy, I had, you know, people who, uh, Mike Mansfield, Tom Keekle, 
I had people who I knew were doing their damnedest to represent the best in this country. Those are the examples. That, that's frankly what inspired me to get involved in, in political life was because I really felt I, I, could, I could see that what they were doing and really felt they could make a difference and that I could make a difference. And so that's what I'm trying to say to young people is you can make a difference, but you have to be involved. You have to be interested in, uh, in, in how our democracy functions and how it's supposed to work. I mean, you know, we have a class that we teach for uh, law students from Santa Clara. And the reason I teach it is because in many ways, governing is becoming a lost art form in this country. Governing is, I mean, it is the essential ingredient to making our system of government work. Why? Because it's the only way you solve problems. And the ability to be willing to listen to the other side, to hear what they're thinking, because, you know, and I tell them, this is, this is good for you as a lawyer. It's not just good for you as a citizen. It's good for you as a lawyer. You've got to know what the other side is thinking. You have to know what motivates them. The world is not all black and white. Most of it is gray. And what they're saying has a degree of validity to it that you need to, to understand. And, and it has to be part of your chemistry to then say, okay, this is what I believe, this is what they believe. Where is it that we can come together to try to make, you know, to make both of us feel like we're moving the ball forward? And that, that process is an art form. That's, I mean, that's what I was taught when I was in Congress. That's how I got things done. They don't do that. They don't, they don't have that process because they refuse to sit there and listen to one another. Uh, that, when I send those students we, we have back to Washington in the, uh, uh, the program that provides an internship for them, what I tell them is, I don't give a damn whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, but do not fall into the trench warfare that's now happening in Washington. I want you to rise above that, to look at both sides, to understand what's going on. Doesn't mean you don't have, you know, your beliefs about what's right for this country. Sure you do. We all do. But you have to, you have to say, how do I take those beliefs and move this country in the right direction? And you can't do that alone. I mean, no president, even this president, can slam dunk everything he wants to get done. Clearly. <laughs> can't do it. Yeah. And Congress, as members of Congress, you can't do it either. So it takes a willingness to sit down, to listen, and to develop consensus. And you know what? In the end, what you produce may not be everything you want but you produce something good for the country. That is the reward you get really in politics. It's the ability to move the country step by step in the right direction. Okay. Uh, last question. 
when I told people that I'm interviewing you, and these are smart people, okay? Almost every one of them says, ask them what it was like to be in the sit room. You know what, right? Yeah. So you can tell me you don't want to answer this, you can tell me it's classified, or you can tell me, but very smart people. Ask, that was their first reaction. Yeah. Like, don't ask them about Trump. Don't ask them about Iowa. Like, what about the with sit room? So, what happened in the city? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, it was it was a very proud moment uh, to have worked on uh, that effort because, I mean, obviously nobody knew where he was and. You know, when I became director of the, of the CIA, the president said, look, you're, you're, I want you to concentrate on going after Ben Laden. And, you know, I met with the CIA people and they said, no, we have absolutely no idea where the hell he's at. And I said, that's, that's not good enough. <laughs> so I, I, I told them, you know, we're going to develop a task force that's going to do nothing else but concentrate on that. And they did, and they came up with new ideas, and we finally got a lead on uh, people that might possibly lead us to, uh, to Bin Laden. They were the couriers who used to curry his messages out to, to, to the people. Uh, we were able to identify them and identify a face, and then we found them uh, in a place called Peshawar uh, in uh, Pakistan. And through surveillance, we basically followed them, because we, we now had a facial ID. We followed them to uh, a, a town called Abbottabad in uh, Pakistan. And we surveilled them all the way. And they, they drove into a compound. And saw the compound, he said, something's up, because this compound was about three times the size of other compounds. It had 12-foot walls on one side, eight-foot walls on another side, barbed wire at the top. Uh, it had tremendous security. There was a family living on the third floor of this compound that never came out. Uh, we knew how many were in there because we actually looked at the clothes and the clothesline oh, and figured out how many family members were there. And it told us that, you know, uh, this might very well be where, where Bin Laden is. So we began even greater surveillance. And uh, on a seven, you know, seven day, 24 hours a day, uh, constant surveillance to try to see if it might be Bin Laden. And I, I remember just to tell you one story uh, that there was an older gentleman who used to come out of this compound during the day and he would walk in circles in the yard and then go back in like a prisoner, a prisoner. And I, I told the CIA people, I said, for God's sakes, that could be the one. I mean, give me, give me a telescope, give me a camera, give me something that gives me a facial ID. And they said, you know, we just can't do it. The walls are too high. You know, there's too many barriers. And I told him, I said, you know, I've seen movies where the CIA can do this. <laughs> <laughs> they, never, they never had an ID. So uh, finally, after about eight months of surveillance, the president started to get worried that 
you know, it's talking about it might leak and, and we may not have the opportunity. So he, he said, you know, we need to develop operations. And I went to a guy named Bill McCraven, who was head of special forces. And I said, Bill, I said, this is, this is what we have. Can you develop some operations to go after this continent? And he came up with three approaches. One was take a B-2 bomber and just blow the hell out of the place. <laughs> which had a certain attraction <laughs> to it. But the, but the amount of firepower to do that, to just turn the place into dust, would have leveled about three, three villages. So That's right, back to that. Uh, we thought about the idea of a drone uh, going after that guy walking in circles, but it, it doesn't always work, and uh, we would never know if it was been long. So that's when we decided on the commando raid. Uh, using the SEALs to, uh, to go in. Two teams of SEALs would go by helicopter 150 miles into Pakistan, rappel down into the compound, uh, and then uh, go after bin Laden if he's there. Uh, we thought at first, you know, well, should we do this with the Pakistanis? It's their country. Uh, but every time we had told the Pakistanis where a potential target was, the target would always disappear. So the president made the decision we can't trust the Pakistanis. So now we're going to have to do this on our own. So uh, we go to the National Security Council, present the plan, and uh, a lot of people in the National Security Council thought it was too risky. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense, because they were nervous. I mean, you know, look, we we didn't have 100% ID that Bin Laden was there. I think we had some pretty good evidence, but it was risky, and we could be starting a war with Pakistan. Um, and the president asked me in the Situation Room, what do you think? And I said, you know, Mr. President, I had an old formula I used when I was in Congress when I faced a tough decision, which is to think about asking an average citizen in my district, if you knew what I knew, what would you do? And I said, if I talked to an average citizen in my district and told them we had the best evidence on the location of bin Laden since Dora Bora, uh, I think they would have said, you have to do this. And that's what I'm telling you. Uh, he didn't make a decision, but the uh, next morning I got a call that uh, it was a go for the mission. And so uh, we waited for a uh, moon, uh, moonless night, uh, and uh, two helicopters took off from uh, Afghanistan. And again, they went, uh, they went near the mountains to try to avoid radar detection. And we followed them uh, into the compound. And because it was hot that day, the heat from the ground came up and stalled one of the engines on the helicopter. And we actually saw the helicopter wobble. And thank God it was a great pilot, uh, it was a warrant officer, old guy, lowered the helicopter down. And I remember saying to McRaven, I was in contact with him, uh, I was running the operation for the CIA. Uh, I said, what the hell's going on? 
And he said, he didn't miss a beat. He said, don't worry, we've got a backup helicopter that's gonna come in, we're gonna breach through the walls, we're gonna go ahead and go ahead with the mission. I said, God bless you. And he did, and he went in, it was about, uh, there was gunfire at first, you could hear the gunfire. And uh, so he knew something was up. And then uh, it was about 20 minutes of silence. Longest 20 minutes of my life. And at the end of that 20 minutes, uh, he said, uh, McCraven reported, he says, I think we have a Geronimo, which was the code word for Ben Laden. And it was a few minutes later, he said, we have a Geronimo, which meant we had Ben Laden. Uh, they had to uh, get into the backup helicopters, take off. They had to blow up the helicopter that was on the ground because we didn't want it to fall into the wrong hands. Uh, and that woke up people and we thought, of, you know, who knows whether uh, the military, the uh, Pakistani military would try to scramble jets and go after helicopters. What we found out is they don't like to fly at night, so that helped. Uh, so the helicopters made it back uh, and we confirmed it was Bin Laden. Uh, and I remember when we went down to the White House to, you know, to report to the, the White House that crowd, crowds were beginning to gather in, in the front and back of the White House and they were yelling, USA, USA, CIA, CIA. I never thought I would hear that <laughs> in my life. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was one of those missions where Tough decision. I mean, I give the president a lot of credit because it was a tough decision to make, but he made the right decision. And uh, and because we had good people, good SEALs, good intelligence people, we were able to get the mission accomplished. So it's uh, it was one of those proud moments, you don't forget. And you're sitting in this room and you're getting a live feed and pretty much. Is that Hollywood or is that, that's how it really is? Not Hollywood. It's a feeling jubilation. I mean, he killed somebody, right? I mean, yeah. No, no, it's uh, it's more, I mean, listen, more, it, at that point, it was more about if, if Bin Laden is not there, uh, I don't want to get into a war with Pakistan. <laughs> for violating their state? Yeah, for going in, you know, for, for what, for no reason. Uh, so that was a concern. And uh, so when we, you know, we found had been Laden, that was it was great relief that we had found. But then the challenge was to make sure they got out of there without, you know, nothing happening. So it was, you know, it was it was tense, but uh, it was one of those moments where good training by the SEALs, who are very well trained, good people, uh, got it done. <laughs> Anything you want to add? <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I think, I think in many ways, you know, I, I guess that's why when you began this conversation about, you know, where is this country going? I, I remember, you know, as secretary and as director of the CIA, I mean, I, I met a lot of people who, especially in uniform. Uh, who were willing to put their lives on the line for our country. And it's not like, you know, they don't, they don't spend a lot of time kind of, you know, fighting 
that, you know, their role, they basically say, yes, sir, you know, and they do it. And I, you know, I always think about that because if they're, if they're willing to put their life on the line in order to protect our country, why is it so difficult for an elected leader to make the decision to do the right thing? I'm not asking that person to put their life on the line like I, like I am that soldier. But I'm saying to that person, you're an elected leader, you have responsibility to this country. Why is it so tough for you to make the right decision? Because if it is, then, then that will undermine our democracy. On the other hand, if they can follow the example of these people who are brave and willing to support their country, then I think, you know, there's hope for our democracy. And you can tell this story just like this, and aren't you afraid that some secret cell in America is going to come to the Panetta Institute and wipe you out? I mean, there's no suburbans out there with guys with their ears and, you know... You know, yeah. I've uh, yeah, I've come to live with that for really? ever since. Yeah, no, you I, have no guard, no protection, no. No, I had I had a detail uh, initially, and uh, but now no, you just no, now I have a golden retriever. <laughs> <laughs> you should lick them to death. Seriously, there's nothing, nothing. No, I mean they they continue to watch intelligence in case there's any, any indication, but you know, so far. Wow. How it's on Jimmy. <laughs> wow. But, you know, when I, do, I, I, I will tell you when Soleimani happened, and yeah. these guys I thought are going to do, do something, you begin to think about, you know, are they going to do something crazy, you know, like, like that. So you, you, you still think about it. Well, right after that, Soleimani uh, was the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas with the yes. Ivanka Trump keynote. And I thought, well, if I were there, <laughs> this is a twofer, right? I would not go. I think that's, I mean, that's right. right? Yeah, you, gotta, you have to worry about that. And then, and then there's this thing called the Super Bowl. That's a pretty good opportunity. Yeah, no. I, I, uh, I used to be important and get invited to Davos. Oh, yeah. I'm not important anymore. <laughs> but the Davos. I went to Davos a few times. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's a, a whole, trip. Yeah, it's a real trip. So I, I, <laughs> the, the World Economic Forum. You're in the, the highest village in Switzerland. Right. Yeah. Snow, like, I mean, it's like snow everywhere. And all of these people in fancy cars right. and yeah. furs and everything. I mean, so, total. And you're standing at the Euro and you look over and it's like the president, president of Slovakia or something. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so after 9-11, the world was and I was at that one, and there was, you know, the gala last night ball, and I didn't go because I thought, you know, if there is a time to wipe out every leader in the yeah. West, yeah. that would be the place. Well, I used I to stay in my Hilton Hotel that night. <laughs> I used to think about that, you know, every time I, after that, I'd, I'd go to stay in the Union address. Yeah. Designated survivor. Yeah. Were you the designated every once in a while? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that literally, that's how it works. Yeah. Like you don't go to Congress, then you, you just go to Congress. 
Yeah. So if everybody else gets wiped out, it's true. Yeah, you're it. it. <laughs> Good news, bad news. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't happen. <laughs> wow. Oh, and somebody mentioned, you know, you wanted to be sure to plug your marine efforts now. Oh. What is that about? What? Uh, well, you know, we were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, Washington at its best, and uh, I was able, when I was uh, in Congress, uh, representing the Central Coast, uh, we had another administration, it was the Reagan administration, a guy named Watt, who was Secretary He's looking like a good guy. I was yeah, like, yeah, but he wanted to drill everywhere. And so uh, he was going to put up uh, every, everywhere for, uh, for sale, for offshore drilling. And, uh, you know, I, I represented the Central Coast, uh, Big Sur, uh, Pebble Beach, and Cypress Point, all the way up to uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, I said, uh, wait a minute. I said, uh, you know, I, I asked a Republican congressman, goes back to this, you know, ability to kind of reach out. I had uh, Don Clawson, who was representing Mendocino. And I said, uh, why don't, let's meet with uh, Watt. And we did. And I said, look, Mr. Secretary, I know that, you know, there are some areas where, you know, we can get the resources down that ought to be protected. And I said, that's that's what my coastline is. That's It's the Big Sur coastline. It's, uh, you know, Monterey Bay, Pebble Beach. I mean, it, this is a unique part of our coastline. It ought to be protected. And Mendocino, I told, you know, Don Clawson, and Watt went up the picture pointing and said, that'd be a great place for an offshore drill. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, shit, am I in trouble? Uh, so what I did was, uh, working with members, Republicans and Democrats, we developed legislation to develop a moratorium. And it basically said, no funds shall be used for the purpose of advancing offshore drilling. You do that in an appropriations bill. Uh, it was a tough fight, not easy. The oil companies gave us some opposition, but we were able to win. And I, and we, and we each year you had to repeat that moratorium. And I began to worry that at some point if oil prices really spiked or something happened, that the politics of this thing would suddenly fall apart and I would be vulnerable. So I was looking for permanent protection. And the idea, normally a marine sanctuary uh, is created administratively. And while they had looked at Monterey Bay because we have a very deep canyon out here, it's about as deep as the Grand Canyon. Um, they, they, they didn't make the decision. So I decided to establish a national marine sanctuary legislatively that would cover the Central Coast. And I, you know, I went to my friends in the, in the House side, we put it in legislation. And then I went over to the Senate and I got them to stick it into uh, a CR, continuing resolution because I knew the president was George Bush at the time, first George Bush. 
and they were opposing it, but it, I knew that if I stuck it in a CR, he would have to sign it because otherwise it shut the government down those days. They cared about that. Um, so I, I, got, I successfully got it into that bill uh, and the president signed it, created the, the Marine Sanctuary. And that's why what you see from San Simeon all the way up to uh, Point Pinos is protected from uh, because it's a national marine sanctuary. Did he know he was when he signed? That yeah. what he was doing? But he didn't. He didn't want to veto a CR because it might shut the government down. And uh, it's now protected area. So now when we get another crazy president and crazy secretary of interior. Uh, who wanted to do offshore drilling, they can't touch this area because it's uh, protected from offshore drilling. So now what we're doing is uh, actually uh, we have a foundation to try to help fund, you know, uh, and, and protect uh, areas of the, of the sanctuary, but also to be able to prevent whales from getting entangled, you know, uh, to uh, against those lines uh, to promote recreation um, to do things that other I mean federal dollars used to cover that stuff but these days there's no money for that so so we have a foundation to basically raise money to help uh, advance the essential but it, it's an important objective because I mean with climate change our oceans are changing a great deal and uh, you have to really worry about uh, rising seas, all the things that are being So she'll be coming on before your book. Yeah. Yeah, she's well, yeah. It's okay. good. It's about the future. Okay. All right. Can I ask my question? So if, if, that's, if that's protected, why are they allowing the uh, the cruise ships to come in here, which are you know, but you know, just behemoth pollutant-wise? <coughs> the cruise ships have to meet standards to come in here. They okay. can't they can't do any discharge. They're pollution. They are, uh, they check those ships before they come in. But there are a lot of people who don't like don't like them coming in anyway. So, right. uh, you know, who knows? Someday they'll probably stop them. But. Normally, that didn't stop ships from coming in. Okay. okay. All right. Good Thank to talk you to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Good.